And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. Today's guest is Ralph Verlin Jensen. Ralph had his first near-death experience at the age of 51, where he had an extraordinary experience with Jesus Christ. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome. Glad to be here. All right. As you may or may not know, my audience loves to hear about near-death experiences. So if you don't mind, can we start on the day yours happened? That sounds fine with me. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a lucky day. Friday the 13th. Wow. It was in February, so it was just before Valentine's, and it was on 2004, Friday the 13th. <clears throat> I I went to bed normally. It was kind of kind of late on on the 12th, and about three o'clock in the morning, a little after three, I woke up, and I wasn't feeling very well. We were living in a very small apartment. We had just gotten over a very uh, difficult business situation and we'd lost everything. So we ended up in this little apartment and I got up and went into, we had a bathroom in there and I went in there to not wake up my wife. She sleeps very lightly. She followed me in there to ask me what was wrong. And I told her my chest hurt. She said, well, mine hurts too. We discovered she had pneumonia. So she ended up in one hospital when I was in another. But the chest got hurting more, and I thought, boy, I need to lay down maybe and breathe, try to breathe better. And I put a big stack of pillows up against the backboard of the bed, and so I was kind of reclined sitting there, and my chest was hurting, I usually deal with problems pretty good, have really high pain tolerance, and my wife didn't know what to do. She said, what do you want me to do? And I thought, well, call the hospital, see what they say. So she calls the hospital. Now, at the time, we had a cell phone we had just acquired that didn't have a real good signal, but our building was made out of concrete block. So in order to get a signal, she had to lean against the window in the bathroom. So she says, well, they said to, uh, you know, call 911. Well, I didn't want to. And <clears throat> so I finally, the pain was getting worse, and I started to holler and thought my chest was going to explode. And I, uh, I said, well, get Michael. We had two of our – we have 12 children. It's a mixed family. We have 12 children. We had two of them living with us at the time, the two youngest Michael and Lisa, and Michael's the oldest. I said, get Michael up and have him go get uh, Brother Olson across the street and have a priesthood blessing. And so he ran over there to get him a little after three. And in the meantime, I was getting worse and worse. And, And then Spencer came over, and he was kneeling next to me, and because uh, I told her, I says, get Michael up, have him go get old brother Olson for a blessing, call 911 and hurry. And, and I started to scream, help me, help me, because it was really painful. And the 911 operator would ask her questions, and then she would ask him, and he would dance her, and they were hollering back and forth to each other. 
Because if she came away from the window, the call would be gone. <clears throat> so she couldn't come by me when all this trauma was going on. And my youngest, uh, my daughter, she got our dog. We had a dog named Buddy. She grabbed the dog and went into her bedroom to, one, stay away from the trial, and two, keep the dog away from the paramedics. So paramedics were on their way. Uh, and then I, my eyes rolled back in my head, and, and uh, I rolled over off the pillows face down on the bed. And when I did that, all my pain went away. And so when you're in all this hellish pain, of course, you want it to go away, but not that way. And I knew that something serious was really going on. I thought, I'm dying, and I couldn't do anything about it. And and I said a quick prayer there, and I says, hey, you know, I, I want to stay. I don't want to die now. And, and uh, you know, God, can you let me stay here? And... and Meantime, my wife was screaming, don't leave me, please don't leave me. And it was rather traumatic, as you can imagine. And then uh, I, I found myself standing in the air against the wall near the bathroom. Now, uh, if you can imagine, here I am, if it's straightforward as my bed, and then behind me to the left was the bathroom and the window, and my wife was back there. And I, I was standing there, and I could see myself on the bed, and I thought, hmm, this isn't normal. There were two men in the room I, that weren't there before. Uh, I could see through the walls. I could see daylight outside. Uh, I could see 360 degrees. I could see my wife on the phone screaming, don't leave me. And I could see my daughter in the bedroom holding the dog and and I thought, well, I guess, you know, this is not normal, and I've probably died. And the two men standing there in the room, they never turned. They stood not at attention, but kind of standing sort of like that. They never turned their head. They never moved. And I said, you know, this is great. I'll stay if I have to, but I would rather go back if you'll let me go back. And I said, yeah, you can go back, you know, and. So they told Spencer what to do and what to say. And he grabbed me with one hand. He put a hand on my head and he uh, commanded me in the name of Jesus Christ and with priesthood that I should return to my body. So then I crawled back in myself. And that was kind of fun getting back in because I could feel the warmth of the spirit getting back in the body. But when it finally completed, then the pain came like a Mack truck hitting me and it was very painful, and I I yelled because it was painful, but I wasn't really yelling because of the pain. I was yelling because I was happy that I came back. And then that's when the paramedics show up. They come in, uh, and our apartment was built in the mid-60s, and the hallway to the bedroom was just barely wide enough to get the gurney down. Nobody could stand on either side. It was just really narrow, a couple of feet wide. So when they got me off the bed, they put me on this kind of like a plastic tough sheet and then just threw me on the bed and they caught me. <laughs> but anyway, we get out and we're on a dead end road and it's a ladder fire truck just picking me up. So they have to back out and they get me to the hospital 
uh, the Alta View Hospital, which is just a couple of miles away. And I'm laying sideways in the bed. Uh, and so they take me up feet first and rush to the emergency door and it doesn't open. You know, of course, now it's getting quarter to four kind of a time. And so the doors are security locked. And I could see a man inside the inside the glass and he's just standing there and everybody just stopped and looked at him. And it's like, oh, yeah, I got to open the door. So he runs over and he punches some buttons on this thing and the door opens and they rush in. And I was laughing. They thought I was crazy. And I thought it was kind of funny, but I was still in pain. And we get in there, and I was there for quite a while, um, oh, about an hour and a half or so. By then, my, I had family. My wife had called, and family came. And so my daughter-in-law was there, and they were standing by me. And then I went into cardiac arrest again. Well, my nurse happened to be a male nurse who was very large. He was about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he weighed close to 300 pounds, like a big football lineman. And he was a little ways away from me when all the alarms went off. And my kid said he ran over, he jumped in the air, took both fists above his head, and before he hit the floor, his fists hit my chest. And then he jumped on me and he pushed on my chest and it ended up breaking my whole rib cage off of the sternum. And and he was so big, he had a lot of pressure. And of course he's trying to compress the heart. So my kids were all scooted out of the room. My, my wife had gone out somewhere to make a call or something and, and they wouldn't let her back in. And they didn't, my kids didn't tell her that I'd gone into cardiac arrest again. And so for 12 minutes, they shock paddled me. It burned all the skin off. They put the paddle right here and then down on the right, on the left side. So it kind of goes through the heart. And I got a lot of burns. And since it was here every time, it just took all my skin off. And then they stabbed me with needles and did all kinds of stuff, I guess. I don't know. For 12 minutes. And then when I came back out of that, I was flown to uh, what's called the LDS hospital, which could do cardiac work, which this hospital I was in could not. So the helicopter flew me, and then I had to be paddled some more. When I got on the table, I was pretty well dead again. And they couldn't give me any anesthetics, so... The only thing they could do is stent, and the stent actually worked. And if they would have had to do bypass, they would have had no chance. But the stents worked. I had a a heart attack that is medically non-survivable. It's a 100% death rate. If you have that heart attack, you will not live. And I... (laughs) I told the nurse later, I says, well, your stats are still right. I died. I just got to come back. And so it's funny. When when I finally got out of the CICU and I had a heart pump and all that, she says, uh, they'd taken that out. But she says, you're in the wrong room. I says, well, I can't get out of bed. I didn't choose a room. She says, no, that isn't what I mean. You should be in the basement. 
mm. as well. I'm sorry, I'm still here. But yeah, I had to have a pump put in, a balloon pump, and uh, I had 24-hour care until my heart started to work again. And and uh, they took the pump out. It was a pretty big thing. I couldn't tell how they got that in there. It was pretty big. Uh, well, maybe I'll tell you my kind of the, how I think about things. Mm. And this is in my book. Uh, I, I wrote a book about this, Taught by Christ. But uh, I like to be happy no matter what the situation is the best I can. And while I was laying there in the hospital, I had I had about 20 or so IV lines coming into me. I had 40 or 50 wires connected to me. They had shaved all the hair off me. And to me, that's a big deal. And so I couldn't move. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't even put my chin on my chest. I couldn't move my legs because they said, you move, you're dead. Because of all these cables going inside my aorta and my heart and all the stuff I had. They said, you can't move or you're dead within 10 to 30 seconds. Depends on how bad a damage I do to myself. I said, well, that doesn't sound very good. And, and uh, while I was laying there, the uh, nurse was sitting next to me. She sat there most of the time or right outside the door at a monitor. And I could hear this pump, 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 pump noise. <laughs> I said, that sounds like it's coming from this box over here. I said, what is that? She says, oh, that's uh, that's your heart. That's pumping your blood. That's the pump you have inside of you. This is making it work. I said, well, that's a good thing then, isn't it? She goes, yeah. So in the meantime, see, while I have to have these in, I have to have everything going into my arteries. So I'm bleeding quite a bit. And they had these big gauze pads that were under me to catch the blood and and they uh, they had to switch them because they're all saturated. So they're putting them in big big bowls, and and they're silent. And I thought, this is not good. Let's be happy. I I, I want to be happy. And so I I couldn't put my chin down, but I could kind of look down at them. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm just having a bad period this month. And they looked at me stopped moving and looked at me and then cracked up. And one of the aides almost fell on the floor. He's laughing so hard. So now they got to hold me up because if they drop me, I can die. So they got to hold me while they're laughing. It just so happened that uh, a week later, I was back with another heart attack going the same process in the same room with the same doctors. And I, and it was, wasn't quite as bloody. And I said, this is a little lighter month. And they all started laughing again because I want to be happy. Look at the bright side of things, even when things are pretty rotten. And I've gone through a lot of different trials in my life. And if I didn't have a positive, happy attitude, it could really sink you. But now the experience that my book about, it, it talks about that. But the experience that I had with the Savior actually started in my room, which I didn't know that the man who gave me permission to live was the Savior. But so now I, I get into the hospital when I was gone for 12 minutes, 
I didn't get to watch myself on the bed there and watch him beat me up and shock me. But I ended up in a room that was rather generic. Just It had a closure feeling, but it also had an infinity feeling, like there was no end to it. Uh, and there wasn't anything there, just people. My first wife had died at that time. Uh, she died in January 99, so it had been about five years, a little over, in a car accident. So I meet her. She's standing there. She was the closest one to me. She was about, I don't know, 20 feet away. And she stood there, arms to her side. My parents had died earlier. And incidentally, my dad died on February the 13th in 1992. So the very same day I had mine. And they were standing a little bit behind my wife, just standing there with their arms to the side. And they said, you've already got permission to be, you know, in mortality. So what are you doing here? We have more to get done for the second coming than we have time for. And all you're doing is getting in our way. So you go back to where you want to be. Let us get back to work. Mm. He didn't even say hello. And, uh, well, I'm a stubborn Norwegian, and I, I have all bully. I haven't seen you for a while. I'm going to go over there and, and see and see what you're doing. And I gave him a hug and talked to him and found out what they're doing. And, and then the man who gave me permission to live was standing behind, back a little ways even farther. I thought he might be my guardian or an escort or something. And, but he, he drew me to him. And so I left my family and they skadoodled and I never saw him again. And I, I'm walking back to see who this guy is. And the Holy Ghost says, that's Jesus Christ, the Savior. Oh, that changes everything. <laughs> and I had I was then faced with two major problems. One, I couldn't get to the floor fast enough to bow to my Savior. And two, I couldn't get deeper than the floor. But he asked me to stand and come to him, and so I did. So I walked over to him and gave him a hug. And he's taller than me, you know, like six two, three ish kind of height to me. I'm a whopping five eight, used to be five ten, but I've shrunk. <laughs> and he asked me a question. So he's looking into my eyes. I'm looking up at him. We were only a couple of feet apart. And he says, where is your heart? Four words. Where is your heart? Of course, he's not talking about the one in my chest. He's talking about where are my values? <clears throat> what do I think is important? Are you with me? Or are you with the world or something else? Well, my whole life flashed before me, and I saw all the things I'd done wrong. <laughs> and I thought, how can I say I'm with you when I'm so imperfect? But he didn't demand an answer. He just gently took me on a historical tour. Now, I'm sure most of you have seen Scrooge, of uh, the Christmas Carol. And the first ghost comes and takes him back to his Christmas past. And he sees it in three dimension, but he can't interact with them. Well, I went back to the life of the Savior, back before he was born, before the earth was made. And 
I got to see it all in three dimension. I got to see the council and war in heaven, like John talks about in Revelations and and how the dragon or Lucifer was cast out. And so I got to see all that. And then Christ made the earth and I got to watch him do that. So that was really fun. I got to see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And uh, then, uh, so when, and, and when he was born, uh, in Bethlehem, the uh, well, the manger in the stable. The stable is a cave, and it's outside of Bethlehem. It's hewn in the it was a cave, and then the rock is kind of soft there when you start chiseling on it. And so the manger was actually chiseled in the side of the cave in kind of an outcrop. Uh, but that's where where he was born, and I got to be there. The whole time this is happening, the real live resurrected Savior is standing right next to me. Uh, actually, a lot of the time when I'm watching all this, I forget he's standing there because I get so engrossed in what I'm seeing. And at that time when I was there with the birth, I I thought, I, I'm not worthy to sit here and watch this. I, I, I got to leave, huh? This is too sacred for me to be here. And of course, he knows your thoughts. And so he just gently held the back of my elbow on my right arm. You know, you're going to watch. You need to stay here and watch this. Okay, I'll watch it. And it was amazing to be there. There was a midwife that delivered the Savior. Now, I don't know where she came from, if it was an angel or if it was someone in town. But midwifing was the normal way to deliver a child in those days. And and she came and left, and I didn't know where, so I can't answer that. But what I got to see was basically his entire life. In the scriptures we have recorded in the New Testament, 34 days of his life. And even those 34 days, you only get part of it. You know, his birth, how much of you, do you get about that? You know, an hour. And then when he's... When uh, he is a child who could walk around, he was nearly uh, three years old. When the wise men came to the house and saw him, and then he goes to Egypt, and then later when he's in, they're back, they're back to Bethlehem for the Passover, and he gets away from the family, and he's in the temple. He's 12 years old. His 12 years old was an, an adult in those days. In our life in, in the United States, 21 is a as a full adult and in those days 12 was a full adult and you're expected to have your own family you're expected to get married and run a house at 12 years old and the average age of those days was only 14 so they didn't go out and play soccer and football and play around and watch video games they were studying the scriptures and studying how to be an adult their entire life uh, so then, then the next time you, you see him, he's getting baptized. And then he goes up and gets the fasting and tempted. And then there's nitpick little spaces where he gives store, uh, his sermons or he grills somebody. He brings somebody back to life. And then finally he gets arrested and all that. So it's only 34 days. But I got to see all of it. I got to see everything. Now, I am not allowed to share a lot of 
anything between there. Uh, but it was fun to watch. He grew up very normal. He had the same temptations you and I have every day. Uh, a carpenter in those days was a, a stonemason more than anything. They did work in mud. They made mud houses and they had wood on the roof. He didn't make much furniture because nobody had furniture. Only the very rich or the ruling class had furniture. Uh, he made tools and wagons and stuff like that. But most of what he did was chisel rock. So he's a pretty tough guy. Uh, sometimes when I see paintings or, or, or three-dimensional sculptures of him and they have him kind of wimpy, uh, it's kind of offensive because he was a very powerful, strong person. You know, he could go to the Olympics and compete real good because he was really tough. And, you know, he smashed his finger once in a while. <laughs> he did things, but he didn't, he didn't break any commandments of his father. So that made him sinless. He was a sinless individual. Uh, it tells us in Hebrews that he he learned, uh, you know, experience by the things which he suffered. Uh, he was obedient. And it says he would be made perfect. He became the author of salvation and all those that obey him. And so... He didn't do everything perfect as he was growing up. He didn't make a perfect chisel. He didn't make a perfect sigh handle every time when he did it. But he eventually did. Uh, but he was sinless. He didn't break commandments. So that made him qualified to be our Savior. So I got to watch all the things that you read about, all the miracles. I got to watch him walk on water and heal the blind and, and feed the 5,000 and give the Sermon on the Mount. Got to watch him pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and suffer and bleed at every pore, where he his suffering for our injustices and sins uh, began there. Then he went through the trial, then he goes through the beating and he's nailed to a cross. And had a suffering from the garden came and joined with the suffering of the nails until he had completed the work his father sent him to do. Now, some of you might wonder what the cross looked like. I can tell you quickly. In those days, crucifixion was normal. A lot of people were crucified. And they wanted to belittle you as best they could. So you weren't crucified off in some distant place or away from traffic. They put you on the road. You know, years, years ago, there was a show called Spartacus where Douglas or somebody big it was Spartacus. And when they crucified all the slaves, they had them all up and down the roads. Well, that's the way they did it. And so he was crucified on, on Golgotha, but that doesn't mean that he's on the top of it. And they're thinking, see, if this is the hill and, and you're here, you're on Golgotha. But if you're here, you're also on Golgotha. That doesn't mean you have to go to the top. Just as long as you're on the hill. And it just so happened that that hill came down to a road and there was a crossroads there. So a lot of people could see him. And the three were all crucified right there so that uh, more people could make fun of you and beat you with sticks or throw rocks at you or spit at you. And your feet are only about a foot off the ground. 
So you're really low down. And they they had this the vertical part stuck in the ground already. And that part is called the tree. There's another name, a Hebrew name for it. But as it says in the Old Testament that he was crucified on a tree, well, he he wasn't going nailed on a tree with bushes and leaves. They just called that vertical a tree. And the top part, like a capital T, this part is called the cross. And that's the part he carried. This part was already in the ground. And any of you who are woodworkers, you might know what a mortise and tenon joint is. Mortise and tenon joint is when you have a large area, then a smaller part in the middle, and it goes inside a hole, like you know, kind of like chair legs, the braces for chair legs. And and so that tree was in the ground, and most of the Israelites were so small compared to the height of the Romans. All they had to do is nail them to the cross then go up and stand and stick them on and uh, then nail their feet. Christ was taller. So the, the usually in those days, they'd have two guards assigned to each crucifixion and they would do it how they wanted. And so it just so happened. They said, well, we're assigned to this guy. He's too tall. We don't have a cross. I mean, a tree tall enough. So they had to go out and chop down another tree get one big enough, tall enough that they could get him off the ground. And it was kind of fitting because, you know, he's the savior and, and the lamb and he gets a brand new tree and then the, the cross and they didn't hewn them all nice and smooth. They'd left them rough and barky. So they'd scratch you up more. Uh, they didn't care how pretty it was. But still, the cross piece is, you know, 100 to 150 pounds, depending on how much sap is in the thing. Still a lot to carry, especially after you've been whipped like he was. And normally, crucifixion, uh, now nailing, everybody got nailed. They got nailed in here, and then they got nailed in here. We call it the palm and the wrist. In those days, this all meant palm. Their palm went clear to here. So even though he had two nails, it was still in the palm of the hand. And and one is for pain and one is for support. And the normal place to put it is in the little hole in your wrist. But the prophecy is that no bone will be broken. Christ wouldn't have a broken bone. So if they drove it through that that wrist bone, it could break your your wrist bones. So he was nailed just ahead of it. So, so the Holy Ghost guided these guys on how to crucify him to not break his bones. And even a greater time of breaking the bone, they didn't nail your feet the way they do in the movies. And they didn't have neat little pads to put them on. They didn't care about that. They just nail you down. And the best way to nail was, uh, you know, if this is the, the tree, the foot would come on the side of it. So they would just bring your heel back and drive it through the side of your heel bone into the into the wood. And so it was driven side to side through the heel bone into the tree. And and so when they would pull up to breathe, they would be rocking on those old square hammered nails on their heel bone. So that was not much fun. But now you couldn't do that with Christ because Christ wasn't supposed to have a broken bone. And so he 
his was different. They took his feet and they put one on top of the other. Well, that's how they show it in the movies. They put them on the... Anyway, trying to show you here. They just put it flat and then they drove it between the thing, the toe bones underneath the wrist and that held the weight. And another thing they do is they hold, tie them up there because the nails won't hold them. But what do they do with Christ? The nails are all handmade. And it just so happened that there were some nails with very large heads. And the guards, they're going to crucify him. They happen to pick the ones with great big heads, kind of like a roofing nail. <clears throat> and so when they nailed him, the head was so large that it wouldn't pull through so they didn't have to tie him. But they tied the thieves, and the thieves are uh, nailed the same. And you uh, die of tectonic cramps usually. Because when you're standing, when you're hanging like that, you can't exhale. So you have to pull up the <laughs> inhale, you know, exhale your air and bring it some in, and you go back down. And what kills you is when you don't have enough strength to pull yourself up to breathe. And that can take up to three days. And during that time, the birds come and eat you and all kinds of stuff. It's terrible. Of course, Christ is only there for a few hours because they weren't killing him. He was giving his life. So anyway, I, I got to watch that. And and as he was carrying his cross, that was another time that I, I thought, this is too sacred for me because the crucifixion and the atonement of Christ is something that all the prophets have all prophesied is going to happen. And, and that would going to be the, the event that would overcome the death that Adam and Eve brought in by the fall, physical death. And then it would bring in the a solution for a spiritual death, which is separation of God and man through his uh, pain for our sins and trials and things. So, uh, I, I thought, man, this is so sacred. I, I can't watch this. And I was going to turn away again. And Christ just told my army, he said, now nah, you can stay here and watch. So, okay. But anyway, so you have time for questions. Just understand that what I got to see was the entire life of Christ. Everything. And, you know, 99% of his life, you don't know uh, from the scriptures. And so, I got to see a lot of things, and some of it I can talk about. Christ was Jehovah of the Old Testament, so he was the one who met Moses on the mountain, the burning bush story, and uh, he's the one that, you know, talked to Abraham and everything else. So I get to be there for all of that as well. Anyway, that was my story. Uh I already knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Savior, and this just got to let me see the details of his life. And so, you know, every time I talk about this, uh, the Spirit has asked me to bear witness of it, so I do. And so uh, I bear witness that the story I'm telling you is true, and that it was told to me being true, not just because I got to watch it, because the Holy Ghost told me, and that's the only way you can know truth anyway. So I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ that these things are true. Now, I I think Jeff wants to have some time for questions and comments. And uh, is it enough time? Yes. Enough time? Yes, we do. I first want to say thank you for sharing your experience with us. 
And I just want to get one thing clear about your experience. And it happened when you came to the hospital and you had another cardiac arrest and you were gone for 12 minutes. That's when you had your experience? That's when I had most of it, yeah. Okay. So how did this experience change you after you came back? Well, like I said, I already, what I saw, I was familiar with. I already knew what I saw happened. I already knew that Christ had a pre-mortal and that we were there and I already knew all this stuff anyway. So how it changed me was it's a great responsibility to have such information and have an experience like this. How do I use it? Do I use it for my own private gain or do I use it, you know, in glory or do I use it to glorify God? And and so it's a it's a great responsibility that sometimes gets very heavy. And I, uh, maybe along with this question, I have a lot of people ask me or say, boy, I'd sure like to have your experience. That'd sure be fun to have. And I say, really? Okay. <laughs> Let me give you three things that go along with this that – After I tell you this, see if you want to have it. First, you said you have to die. (laughs) Sometimes that's not fun. And this was very painful. And you also don't know if you're coming back. It was a very helpless feeling. You know, when I went into the room and and, uh, the doctor told me my wife had died, I felt absolutely helpless. You can't change it. He said three words, and we lost her, or four words. Ah, that is terrible. And so now when I was dying, I've had that same absolute helpless feeling. I can't change it. But it was also very painful. Uh, So you got to die. Sometimes it's car wrecks, whatever. But then, like I said, it's a great responsibility. Do you want that responsibility? Do you want to have this and be judged for it? when you get to meet the Savior for the last time in the judgment, and he says, hey, I gave you this cool thing, and all you did is waste it, that's a big responsibility. And I am always concerned about that. And now there's another thing. It's called opposition. There's opposition in all things. And and like the uh, war in heaven took place, and, and we read about it in the Old and New Testament, where you have Lucifer and you have Christ. Well, you need that to have choice. You can't have agency without choice. And so there has to be opposing sides. And so when you get to meet the Savior, guess who else you get to meet? So, yes, I have had time to meet Lucifer. I have seen him more than once. uh, And uh, I have seen him in different forms. He's tried to deceive. But I saw him. And him as him, his evil, ugly self. And uh, and I felt sorry for him because he was a person of absolute hopelessness, great despair, no light, no truth, no light. Just is very depressing. And I felt sorry for him. I thought, you, you want to be there? I mean, this is a dumb place to be. But then he wants to get rid of me. And so I have had a lot of occasions of fighting that guy and his angels, uh, which I don't want to share at all. I don't like to talk about that too much. 
but it isn't always fun. And sometimes it's very difficult. I know God's more powerful, so I've been able to get rid of him. But still, do you want that? And so if you have an occasion of something like I got to have, you're going to also have occasions of Lucifer coming after you. And actually, some of the worst things is his subtleness. He can sneak little things in and and make you think that your experience was different than it is or greater than it is or weirder than it really was. And, And he can also, you know, sneak his little lies in your life and try to get you to to pull away from the Savior. And that's in many ways is actually worse, even though it's terrible to be knocked around by him uh, and to fight him, you know, pretty much face to face. Uh, The other is it is more dangerous because it's sneakier. Hmm. So, yeah, that that has that's some of what's changed it, changed my life. Why do you think Jesus chose to show you his life in the first place? Well, that's a question I can't answer. Hmm. I, When I spoke at the near-death experience forum here in, in Salt Lake, uh, I've had people ask me that. And afterwards, we had a lot of people staying around asking questions and I said, well, I don't know why I was called to do this. I don't know why I don't feel up to it. I, you know, I don't feel like I'm worthy of it or my ability. And one of the ladies in the group, she goes, I know why you were called because you'll do it. Uh, Well, I do talk to everybody. (laughs) I'll go talk to everybody anywhere. And so, and God knew that. And then I also, already had a witness of Christ. And so uh, it wasn't a stretch to go out and talk about him. But I cannot answer why. I, If I dwell on that, that's a negative. And I don't want to bring negative energy. And so all I can say is, God chose it. I have to accept it and then use it as he wants me to use it. That's all I have to worry about. Is there any part of witnessing Christ's life that had the most profound effect on you? Witnessing about Christ's life? Yeah, I mean, well, just during your experience, is there anything of Christ's life that had the most profound effect on you? Well, see, I knew he was the boss of everything. You know, his father put him in charge of all these things, and he says he he does the will of his father. And his father gave him the power to be resurrected and and to pay for our sins. And, and so he was obedient to his father. And I already knew that he had all this power. But that was one thing that when I came back as a mortal again, and it was interesting that it was after I got out of the hospital, uh, I got home. And I got up, I got up uh, the first morning and uh, I hadn't sleep in the hospital. And so I finally got some sleep at home. So I slept for a while. Normally I only sleep four to six hours a night and I slept 10 hours. So, but I got up and I, I went over and stood at the foot of the bed where he had stood in my bedroom. 
And the overwhelming ah-ness of Christ, his power, his authority, the majesty that he has is so huge that it, it just almost consumes you. And so it, it became really real. And, yeah, I could see that when I was seeing what he did when I was dead. But as a mortal, and I got to kind of experience that feeling again, it was just massive. And so I guess that's probably the best because it just, like, I'm in charge. Uh, you know, you, you follow me and I'll and you'll be fine. That doesn't mean you won't have problems and trials and have things go wrong. But you can have joy in life and you can have happiness. You can have hope. And then when you get out of this world, you can have a better place to live, better place to be, uh, according to our own obedience. But that was it. It's just his majesty, this huge power. You know, behind you, you have this earth and this space, you know. And I got to see some of that, and uh, it was really impressive to see some of the universe with him. And uh, yeah, he's just he's just in charge. Now you mentioned that the Holy Ghost spoke to you. Did you happen to also see the Holy Ghost, or was it just something that you heard? Well, there's three individuals that make up the Godhead. And they are individuals. They're not three in one massive blob together. There's the father who is very in in physical features, very much like the son. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen my dad, you know. Now, I could say that pretty much about my dad. I'm the most that look like my dad of all the children. You know, if you see me, you've seen him. You know, I have eyes and ears and nose and arms and legs and and he looks about like me, and so you've already seen him. As well as the spiritual part is because I represent him and because I have his, his teachings that we now know as the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though it's the gospel of the Father and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we see him in his work, we see him in his words, we see the Father also. So I, I got to see the Father in heaven, I didn't get to talk to him. He isn't someone who comes and talks to you. But I saw him twice. He smiled at me twice from a distance, I don't know, 35 feet or so. And, of course, I got to talk to Christ, and I got to meet the Holy Ghost. And, yes, he's an individual. Now, God and Christ have resurrected bodies that you can touch like this one, like he showed his apostles. Because he said, I did everything I saw my father do, and so his father had gone through that, and and uh, But the Holy Ghost is persons of spirit because his assignment is to testify of them, and he can testify more clearly to us as a spirit than as a more hard physical body because it says he needs to dwell in us. And, and it's only through the testament of the Holy Ghost that we can know Jesus is the Lord. And so, yeah, he is an individual. He's separate. He has a different assignment. Uh, and that is to testify of truth. And he is exciting to talk to also. During the podcast, you mentioned that you weren't supposed to share things with us about what happened with Jesus's life. 
Um, but then again, you, I think you said you could share some things. If you can, what things can you share with us about Jesus's life that's not in the Bible? Well, I've already done some of that already. Uh, his dad was a carpenter. In those days, most people were entrepreneurs. They didn't go off to work and punch a clock and work for somebody else. Uh, though they all kind of, they had groups that worked together. And the, the work system wasn't quite the same. So he worked with his dad until his dad died, and then he ran the business. And so he had to go out and make bids because uh, mm. most of what he did would be making like staircases and divider walls and and mm. and roads and sidewalk kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes they made a stone building. Most of the houses that they worked on were, were mud uh, because – you had to be especially appointed by the royalty, the you know, the emperor, in order to be the one who made the rich guys and the emperor's stuff. And since uh, Joseph and Christ were not that, everything they made was for the normal public uh, people. And so he just understand that he, he didn't live this magical life that everybody thinks he lived this very normal life where he couldn't be an example. He says, I'm the example. Follow me. Well, if he had some magic trick going on out here, how can we follow that? He was really good at listening to the inspiration from his father. You know, like he told Peter when he says, you know, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And just so you know, when he said, I, the son of man, am, the son of man means son of God. And... uh and, you know, Peter said that he was the Christ. And then Christ said, well, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My father told you that. You got it from him. And how that is, how, what facilitates that telling is the Holy Ghost. And so he needed that same kind of thing. He needed to receive that information from the Holy Ghost the same way we do. It just so happened that he listens and we don't usually. He obeyed and we usually don't. And because he did it more and more and more, he got it more. And he was taught, he was taught uh, the gospel by the Holy Ghost. And, and later he, he had help like angels and his father. Uh, but we can have angels if we're worthy of it or need it. Uh, he he learned like we did, studied the scriptures. Of course, he was the author of the scriptures they read every day. And as you grew up, you didn't read them. You had someone read them to you, usually your father. Uh, <clears throat> they would read them, and then you'd recite them back. And so half a day was spent in reading and reciting the scriptures. And he was the author of those things, and and as Jehovah, and as he learned more and more about it and, and grew into his calling more, like he told his parents at 12, Aren't, don't you think that would be about my father's business? Of course, he wasn't talking about Joseph. He was talking about the Father in heaven. And, and so when you have that kind of a thing can happen, and, well, there's a couple of things that you learn when he gets lost for three days. One is... They were with a huge group because if you traveled by yourself, you'd be beat up and robbed. 
And so it took him three days to figure out he wasn't with the group. And then when they find him and he says that, it's like a wake-up call. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, I remember who you are now. So that's telling you how ordinary his life was compared to everybody else. Very ordinary life growing up. And, yeah, he had some of his uh, half-brothers and sisters not like him, and some of them really liked him. But uh, his life was very normal. And he was so ordinary-looking. He wasn't some sexiest man alive kind of guy. That he had, even after three years of debating these people, they still needed Judas to show who he was. So that's how simple and ordinary he looked. And so he didn't have an advantage of being the sexiest man alive. He was just an ordinary individual and and, and so plain that they had to have someone who really knew him to kiss him to say, this is the guy you're going to arrest. So anyway, that's. He, he he wasn't in this magic magic life so that we can have a greater chance of living like he did. When you saw him, did he still look ordinary? Well, as a mortal, of course. Mm-hmm. I saw him as a mortal and as a, a resurrected individual. And he's not exactly the same in his appearance because there's more mortal imperfections that don't all transfer with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as a glorified resurrected savior, uh, he has a slightly different appearance. I am not at liberty to describe that appearance. It doesn't matter if the painting that someone makes of him is, is exactly like he looks or not. I can tell you that most of them don't look like him. Actually, everyone I've seen, none of them look like him. But that's not important. The important thing is that when you see that, you recognize him as him and you let him in your life, you make him part of your life. So what he looks like is really not that important. And I can tell you that it took a lot of time before I could really make a description of him because you don't care what he looks like. His eyes are so powerful and the feeling around him is so powerful that you don't stand there and say, let's see, how long's your hair? And let's see, how big's your nose? And, and you know, you don't you don't even care about that. Uh, so most of the time, I, I've had about 10 different paintings shown me that say, this is what he looks like. This guy died and this is what he looks like. Well, then how can you have 10 paintings that are all different? I'll be right. And I wondered about that, and it was taught to me one day. I went and saw, um, what's his name, Block? Uh, uh, anyway, this this old artist from Denmark, he paints a lot of pictures. And, and I was there, and he had this one of him standing there with a small boy holding a branch. And it's one of the few that uh, he painted where he's looking right at you and not at someplace else. And I was kind of paying attention to where I was walking. It was kind of crowded. And I looked up and I looked in those eyes of that painting. Now, that doesn't mean that this painting looks like him. But it gave me a feeling for a couple of seconds. Not as powerful, but it still was reminiscent of what it looked like. But how I felt when I looked at his eyes. And I thought, 
there it is. The Lord is answering my prayers. When someone looks at him and they have a feeling, because we're all on a different level of understanding and spiritual growth, we have a certain feeling. And then when they see a painting that has the eyes that make him feel that way, they go, oh, that's what he looks like. When in reality, it's not what he looks like, but, it's, but, but it makes him feel the same as when they were with him. And so because, because his appearance is so unimportant when you're with him, uh, that it's really hard to stand and describe it. See, now I see you here on the screen and, you know, I can describe you at your little goatee and your glasses and your hair and stuff, but I, you don't pay attention to that. His, his, the spirit around him is so powerful. You don't care. All right. Well, I have to change gears with you because I'm running out of time, but you have a book called Taught by Christ. And I'm assuming that you tell a lot more information about your experience in your book. Yeah. Well, I, I go through the book. The book is a lot of what I've told you and it goes through his life in a little more detail. I don't know. You want me to show this? Sure. Um, anyway, let's see. Can you see it? It's kind of blurry, yeah. but taught by Christ. Uh I it's on Amazon and then I have a YouTube channel under my name, Ralph Berlin Jensen and taught by Christ. And there is some kind of a link thing, but it's kind of long, uh, but you can go to YouTube and find that in the book because it is, because it is a historical life of the savior. Uh, when the spirit asked me to write the book and I didn't want to write the book, it took a while to have him convince me to do it, and I had some provisions. I says, fine, I'm going to have to document it because I'm not just going to write a story. And so how do I put this? So I have references here that back up what I wrote that's scriptural because I saw history. And I've had people criticize me for having scriptures in there and and for not talking about weird things of the spirit world or for bearing my testimony. And all I do is say, thank you. Then I wrote it right. Because the spirit said, this is what I want you to do. You know? And so I don't share weird things about the spirit world because it's a testimony of Christ. Uh, I quote scriptures because I was told I was supposed to. And I will bear witness of it because I was told I was supposed to. So I tried to be obedient. That's my goal. So that's why. And yeah, and the book, the book tells you about a hundredth of my experience, but it tells you the most important part that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, uh, is the Christ. And so, yeah, you'll get more details of things. I talk about, I saw the earth get made. So I talk about the creation as much as he allowed me to. That was exciting. <laughs> I wish I could share more about that, but I can't. Uh, so anyway, I'll let, give you time. All right. Well, before we finish up here, do you have one last positive message that you can share with everyone? <laughs> one last positive message. Well, <laughs> what makes life worth living is knowing that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ. Now, you know, the word Christ is Greek for for Messiah. And they both mean the anointed one. He was anointed to be the savior and redeemer of the world. 
uh, in the pre-mortal, and then again by his father uh, on the mountain when he went up and fasted. And uh, find him, and until you know who he is and how he relates to you in your life, nothing else matters. If you don't know that this guy is the Savior and Redeemer for all of the world, everybody, no matter what their beliefs are, he is the Savior of everyone. And until you know that, nothing else matters in your life. Thank you for that message, Ralph. And thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you. And I wish you the best. Well, thank you for having me on. I I was excited that you called and gave me a message. And so I appreciate that. And I thank you. You've been kind. And it's fun to see you. I wish I could meet you. I hope so, too. Perhaps one day our paths will cross. Yeah, maybe. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day and take care. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.